many of us, as we have gotten further into our careers, have put away core parts of ourselves, sort of shoved them in a drawer or carved them off and hidden them in order to look professional and serious in the world we've gone down. And, and so part of putting your portfolio together requires getting reconnected with what all of those other parts of you are and that may be feeling unserved or underserved recently. So number one, you're more than your job. Number two, diversification is your friend. (laughs) In a world roiled by constant disruption, diversification is the name of the game. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week, we talked to Angel Wood, who runs the Rock and Roll Rumble, a 40 years old battle of the bands in Boston. We discussed the role that an institution like that has in an artistic community and what it means to lead it. Today, I'm very excited to have a return guest, Christina Wallace. She was our featured guest a few months ago, and at the time she was finishing her book, The Portfolio Life. She promised me that she would come back to discuss it when it was ready for publication. Well, the book is coming out on April 18th, so I gave her a call, and here she is. For details on Christina and her career, I encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. There, she discussed in depth her transition from working in the arts to Harvard Business School to starting her own tech business. She was very candid about what happened when that business failed. She talked about how she recovered, she talked about what she learned from it, and how aspiring entrepreneurs can think about the amount of risk they're willing and able to take when they start their own business. Ultimately, her candor and her ability to articulate that are part of what led her to her current position as a professor at Harvard Business School. At the time, we also started touching upon the concept of a portfolio life, how a combination of interests and passions, both professionally and personally, can help us lead an overall more satisfying life. And just as importantly, how embracing all sides of our individuality helps us have a better career as well. Today's episode is our opportunity to go deep into the portfolio life concept. We talk about how she came up with it, what it is, and most importantly, how to live our life as a portfolio life. Christina shares a couple of stories from the book, and she gives us a detailed set of practical steps that we can take to start our journey right now. So enjoy the episode. Christina, welcome. You're a return guest to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. So anybody who wants to learn more about your general life backstory and a lot about entrepreneurship and how to manage risk can go back and listen to the original episode. But today you're back and you're here because at the time you were in the final steps of finishing your book, Portfolio Life, and you promised that you would come back and talk to us about it. So welcome. Thank you for having me back. I'm so honored. You're welcome. So one of the things that I've shared with you a couple of times is that hearing someone like you articulate the idea of a portfolio life was amazing for me. For the first time, it made me feel that having had a career zigzagging as mine and still wanting to be both a coach and a marketer and aspiring to be a musician, not only does it make me strange, but it also may be okay. And actually there is a path ahead. So We talked about the portfolio life a little bit in our last conversation, but let's start 
today by sharing with my listeners how you came up with the idea of the Portfolio Life. What is the story behind it and maybe where you got the name? Sure. So it sort of came in two steps. The first phase of this, I honestly can't tell you where the spark came from, but it was while I was in college. I was double majoring, triple minoring. I I still wanted to do all the things. And, you know, uh, as you get sort of towards graduation date, people keep asking what you're going to do. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I have never wanted to do just one thing. And at the time, I was comparing sort of how I saw my future as a vector addition. So any mathematicians in the audience will recognize when you add vectors, you know, you draw a vector, a vector has length and direction, has two dimensions, you draw a vector, and then the head, which is where like the arrow, right, the very end of it, um, connects to the tail of the next vector. And the next vector goes in a, in a different direction for a different length. And then the next one kind of connects again and goes off in another direction. And, and all together, you end up with this like very zigzaggy path. And if you were to add them all up, you would start at the very tail of the first vector and you would draw a straight line to the head of the very last vector. And so I said, look, I don't want this kind of up into the right straight path. That's not interesting to me. So I want to do this kind of zigzaggy thing. And as long as the next thing connects to the thing before it, I think it all is going to make sense. Um, You would not be surprised to know this idea did not catch on. (laughs) There's too much you have to explain to make vector addition as a career path like a thing. But it was in the back of my head from the very beginning of my career that like this was how I was already envisioning it. And then... A few years later, I was at business school during the financial crisis. And so sort of two things happened there. One, saw plain as day how something outside of your control can completely rip the rug out from under you. And so having diversification in your life uh, could be a really important thing. And then I also learned about portfolio theory in my finance classes. Now, I didn't grow up with money. I grew up in a very uh, kind of working class, paycheck to paycheck family. And so we, we didn't have investments. <laughs> we had we had credit cards, we had savings accounts, and we had checking accounts. And, and so like, it was new to me, this idea that you could actually design asset allocation to meet uh, a, a very prescribed set of sort of risk and return targets at a specific point in your life. And that, you know, when you're younger and you can take a lot more risk because your money is going to be in the market for a longer term, you're going to have a different asset allocation than you would, you know, the year before you're planning to retire. And so this notion of designing uh, to meet these certain targets and then rebalancing that portfolio for different chapters of your life, I was like, oh, this is a really interesting framework. And so as I was graduating from business school, I remember a conversation with one of my classmates, Julie, as I said, you know, I, I don't want a linear career. I don't, I don't even know if I want a portfolio career. I think I want a portfolio life. I said this to her and then I promptly forgot about this. I ran into Julie at my 10-year business school reunion a couple years back. And without knowing that I was writing this book or what the title of this book was, she straight up asked me, 
do you remember that conversation where you talked about a portfolio life? I can't forget it. And I was like, no, what? (laughs) Did I really say that? She's like, yes, yes, you said this back in 2010. So apparently, I've had to go through this process of like, having the idea gel and and kind of firm up in a way that I can share it and and even live it myself uh, over several iterations. But it's nice to know that it's, it's kind of always been there. So I have a confession to make. Tell me. I, you know, and then somebody who's gone to business school has worked in investment banking, etc. But when I read the introduction of the book, where you talk about where Portfolio Life came from, my mind was blown because when I first saw you use the term on LinkedIn, I thought of a portfolio life as like the portfolio of an artist with all these different works in it. And as I think about it, one of the core concepts at the idea of what a portfolio life is, is almost like the overlay of the art portfolio with the investment portfolio, right? So just to help people get grounded a little more into, okay, portfolio life, what what does it really mean? Just just in general term, because I know that then we'll get into more of like the tactical, how do you get to it? But like, how would you describe in terms of what, what somebody's portfolio like may look like? Everyone's is going to look a little bit different. And, and I say this even where everyone's is going to look a little bit different for every chapter of their life. Like my life looks so different right now than it did five years ago, if you look at how my portfolio maps out. But I'll ground this in sort of these three tenets that I I call this around uh, what makes up a portfolio life. Number one, this idea that you are more than any one job, identity, opportunity, whatever that is. You are greater than the title on LinkedIn, (laughs) the term on your business card, whatever that is. And I mean that not just this job, but I mean like whatever that path is, you are more than that. And I think many of us, as we have gotten further into our careers, have, have put away core parts of ourselves, sort of shoved them in a drawer or carved them off and hidden them in order to look professional and serious in the world we've gone down. And, And so part of Putting your portfolio together requires getting reconnected with what all of those other parts of you are and um, and that may be feeling un- unserved or underserved recently. So number one, you're more than your job. Number two, diversification is your friend. <laughs> In a world roiled by constant disruption, diversification is is the name of the game. And that doesn't just mean multiple income streams, although that is always helpful. It means diversification of skill sets, of networks, of relationships, of directions that you could pivot into if something were to happen and the direction you're on suddenly becomes untenable. And then the third tenet is when your life changes when your needs change. You rebalance your portfolio. Nothing is forever. It is only for now. And so think about your life in these chapters or seasons and recognize there will be a point of transition. Beyond that, there isn't as much of a playbook for what a portfolio looks like. But I emphasize the word life and not career because this isn't just about work. 
For many people, myself included, work is a huge part of my life, but it's only a part of my life. And so to think about your career in the context of uh, your hobbies, your relationships, your family and friends, um, your health, rest, (laughs) community, all of the pieces that you need to be happy. And collectively, they can only make up 100% of your time. And I would even argue they should make up less than 100%. I have some research on this in the the back half of the book that says like 85% is actually your target. But, you know, you only have a certain amount of time and energy and, you know, focus that you can grant. And so this notion of work-life balance sort of sets up an idea that work is on one side and everything else is on the other. And that becomes this like zero-sum game, that any hour you take from one side goes to the other. And instead of that seesaw, I want you to think about this like a pie chart where you have these allocations and yes, collectively it makes up your life, the 100% or 85%, but work is a piece of it that goes alongside all of these other pieces. I think it's pretty intuitive, the idea, well, you know, if if you optimize your life, you optimize the time that you dedicate for work, your interests, your family, etc. What I think is really interesting, what caught my attention when, when I first heard about this now over a year ago, is that there's a portfolio approach overall, but there's also the like portfolio within the lanes. And especially talking about things that are counterintuitive for how we have been taught to think about our career, to think about our skill development. You know, we get told like, you can apply, you know, to, I don't know, if you're like a marketing person, only to marketing jobs within your industry. Like, oh, if you worked in an agency, you know, you can't work brand side. These, these are like a lot of prejudices and things that we're taught. And you're taking this, even looking at the work side, and completely exploding that. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah. My, (laughs) I feel very lucky that I was raised by a grandmother. I say this lovingly. She raised me with the confidence of a straight white man, (laughs) where I think the very first time I applied to jobs coming out of college I sent my resume out to like 50 roles. I I was moving to New York. I wanted to work in the arts. And and so there was this job board called the New York Foundation for the Arts. And I applied to basically every job posted. I mean, I I applied to be like a finance assistant at an art gallery. I like all of these things that I was wholly unqualified for (laughs) in every in every sense of the word. But but I didn't look at that job description and say, like, I don't match 99% of the things they're looking for. I looked at it and said, well, I match like a handful of the things they're looking for, and I can learn the other stuff. And that mindset has always been how I've approached careers. And I think is, is super relevant to how I counsel people as they're thinking about the career piece of their portfolio To say, uh, you know, instead of like, this is not exactly what I've already been doing and therefore I'm not qualified to to do it, but instead say like, where, where does my experience connect? Where does the tail of the next vector connect to the head of this one? And then all of the other things that I don't have that experience or I don't come from that world, like, 
tell them how and why you're going to figure it out. You're going to learn fast. And what I, what I love about this approach, it comes back to some research that Clay Christensen did in his book, The Innovator's DNA, where he and his colleagues studied hundreds of the most creative, most innovative people in art, in science, in business. And they came up with these five attributes that were consistent across all of these people. And there was one that was sort of the backbone that the other four kind of uh, rotated around like DNA. And the backbone was the power of associating. And that's the ability to connect seemingly unconnected ideas or industries or networks. That ability to say, I see how this worked here and I bet I could translate it over there. That, That diagonal thinking. And the reason I love the portfolio approach within your career is that, you know, specialization can be helpful. Certainly, I want my neurosurgeon (laughs) to be specialized. But today, in 2023, as we have like AI hanging out over our shoulders, so much of what we think of as specialization can and will be outsourced to computers very, very soon. And what we will still need humans to do is the creative diagonal thinking. It's the innovation and the new ideas. And that comes from being a bit of an outsider in most rooms. So this is where I love this kind of diagonal zigzag positioning within careers to say you've been You've been in an agency, like absolutely go brand side and don't just go brand side to like the exact sector that you were on the agency side, go somewhere totally different and tell them, and this is where the onus is on you, tell them a great story about the experiences you're bringing and how you're going to get up to speed fast in this brave new world. In our conversation, the last time you talked about the image of the human Venn diagram, right? As yes. an additional. So I know everybody here is going to go back and re-listen to the episode, but let's bring it back into context and explain the concept of that. And then something else that you mentioned outside of the podcast, which is the unique piece of the puzzle. Yes, the strangely shaped puzzle piece. So you will not be surprised. I love math. I love all math ideas. I compare myself to a human Venn diagram. This is this is literally how I introduce myself. I love a good graph from set theory. So um, this, I, this notion that we sit, all of us, sort of sit at the intersection of multiple identities, multiple experiences and skill sets and identities. And that's, that's our uniqueness. Nilifer Merchant calls it onlyness in her book. But that is that perspective that we bring to the world. So I, my sort of simplified human Venn diagram is business, technology, and the arts. I have a slightly more uh, elaborate one that that extrapolates on the storytelling and writing and coaching and a number of other things, but I simplify it to those three worlds where when I tell you this, I, I sit at that intersection, I've built a career at that intersection, it suddenly makes sense why and how I could go from a role at the Metropolitan Opera to being a tech entrepreneur, to founding a program for girls in computer science, 
to joining the faculty at Harvard Business School, right? Like the zigzag on the surface makes no sense. You look at my resume, you're like, what is this chick doing? But if I give you that framework, I sit at this intersection and I've intentionally kind of cultivated this career there. That gives you an understanding, number one, that this is strategic, not flighty. And number two, it helps you recognize um, what I bring to the room. Every room I step into, there's everyone who connects with, you know, what we have in common. And there's all of the other stuff that I have outside that room that I can bring to bear. Those relationships, those ideas, those connections. So um, I, I use that human Venn diagram along with this idea that we are all strangely shaped puzzle pieces. I embrace this. I'm a weirdo. I think that's a, a, a net benefit of, of who I am. And if you think about figuring out where you fit in the world, there's one strategy that's sort of the old school strategy that says, okay, if you're going to go out into the world and you, you're going to specialize, you're going to focus, you got to start carving off some of those weird angles and corners and little, you know, like that little piece that kind of sticks out on the side because you're not going to fit into most puzzles. Like if you're that unique, what puzzle is going to have exactly that shape left? And you're, you're right. You step into a room, a puzzle is mostly done. There's exactly one piece remaining unlikely that you're going to fit perfectly. And so we're told and, and we're sort of counseled to start like carving off what makes us unique to fit in a little bit better, a little bit easier. I just don't think that's a good strategy anymore. And, and so my recommendation is to lean in to that strangely shaped puzzle piece, those corners that don't quite fit at 90 degrees. And instead, look for the rooms, look for the puzzles where you are the fit, where you are what they're looking for. Because that's the point where you can stop using part of your energy, your sort of mental capacity for fitting in, and instead channel all of that into just doing amazing work. And the moment that I finally realized this, it was sort of my late 20s, early 30s, the moment I realized, I was like, I just need to find the rooms who want what I have to offer. And there are far fewer of them than maybe I would like, but I know almost immediately if I'm a fit or not, right? So like my, my funnel gets really narrow, but I, I know pretty quickly whether or not this fits or not. And I got to be honest, this was also true from a relationship standpoint. When I finally adopted this mindset around dating is when I met my husband. To stop trying to be what other people wanted in a partner and instead be me and look for people who wanted me. So, so this all kind of circles back to this notion of there are all these pieces of you. For me, you know, I, I love this business technology, the arts. I'm a performer. I, I'm a classical musician. I love theater. I love making things. I love telling stories. I love writing. And for me to be happy at any sort of point along the way, I need some of that creativity in my life. It doesn't have to be in my day job, though. So right now, my portfolio is one where I'm a professor. I teach entrepreneurship and marketing at Harvard Business School. I get to coach students, having that coaching relationship, a key part of my portfolio. I love 
that uh, that opportunity to be an advisor and a mentor. But I'm not making art. I'm not directing theater. Like I'm not getting paid uh, in my day job on that creativity side. And so I wrote a book. That's pretty creative. I'm investing in Broadway shows. I get to be a little minor producer. That gets me staying connected to the, the theater world. I would love to be singing in a choir right now. I've got a one-year-old and a three-year-old. That's not really, a, doesn't. there's no space in the portfolio for performing. So that's on the back burner. And instead I sing Elmo in the car, right? That's like a little minor version of my, my music making. And then the rest of the space in my portfolio right now is space for my family and for self-care. Because parenting two small children is freaking exhausting. <laughs> and, and so that's what I mean by like, figure out what you need and what you have space for and design a mix that meets you at this stage of life. So one thing that you mentioned in here about the art, which is to me very interesting, is there's no space for the arts right now in your life as an earning, if you will, producing thing. But there may be, when, when people think about the portfolio life, you know, there may be a point where there is space for the arts and it doesn't, there's no direct correlation between the revenue that the art may be generating to the happiness and even the quality of the arts, especially given the overall environment. Absolutely. And, and I love that you called this out because many of the case studies that I include in the book, almost all of them, feature people who have the arts as part of their portfolio. And I think one of the challenges, at least in the U.S., for artists <laughs> is that it is really hard to make a life as a working artist. I mean, I have friends who are at the top of their game, who are full tenured professionals at the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, who are performing on Broadway, who are showing at the Whitney. I mean, these are working artists. And they're still struggling to make ends meet. And certainly every step along the way to get there was a real challenge. And so one of the opportunities for anyone who has the arts and has creativity as part of their portfolio that is not taught in grad schools, in undergrad programs for, for creatives, is how can you build a business model for your life that gives you what you need? It gives you the income the health insurance, the stability that makes space for you to continue doing your art in a way that makes it sustainable. Because I have many friends who went all in on a performing career only to burn out and leave altogether because they couldn't make it work. They couldn't imagine a family. They couldn't figure out how to have a life and still be in the arts. And that is heartbreaking. And so part of this is like, is there a way that you can think? And this is also a challenge because to your point of like perception, in the art world, there was a New York Times article on this recently that, uh, and not just, you know, visual arts, performing arts, music, all of them, there's, there's historically been this stigma. If you have a day job, that means you're not that good of an artist. Exactly. And it's bullshit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, we could do a whole episode on detaching that. You know, you need an audience, but more because at the heart of the artistic impetus is the idea that you have something to say. So 
you want to have somebody who hears it. But we're trained that the value and the quality of your art is measured on how much you make, et cetera. And, you know, I say like, look, any job, no matter what you do, whether you're an artist, you're an artisan, you're a consultant, there's a part that is actually doing the job. But if you wanted to make money, there's a part that is actually selling. And the amount of success that you have, there's a baseline of skill set that you need to have to be competent, but the amount is based on your ability to sell. And that's a very hard thing for people to get at. But when I look at it actually from the organizational standpoint, let's say that you are somebody who has managed to get to the point where they have this passion outside of work, it's their hobby, and they have the mental ability to realize that, hey, I'm going to be a lot happier pursuing this without the burden of it being a financial commitment to me, but I need in my portfolio to also have the work. So what are your advantages for organizations to look at that type of employees? I think there's a couple of angles to this. One is, there's research that I quote in the book um, that points to how much happier people are in their day jobs when they have significant interests outside of their day jobs. And in fact, people who are happier in, quote, like, kind of crappy day jobs, <laughs> the like, this is not my life's passion day job. They're, they're happier showing up and doing that when they have somewhere else that they have autonomy, fulfillment, identity elsewhere. So if I were a manager, I would be really encouraged by the idea that, you know, an employee might be moonlighting, fronting some band, or that they might have an Etsy shop for their needlepoint that there's something else that gives them this fulfillment, this identity, this connection and creativity outside of what I'm asking them to do Monday to Friday, nine to five. But there's another advantage, I think, to organizations beyond just employee happiness. Um, and that is when you think about, particularly right now at a point of Maybe contraction, certainly in the tech world, we might see this roll out into other industries as well. If we're not seeing layoffs, we're certainly seeing some interest in kind of belt tightening, which makes it harder to offer promotions, raises, a number of things that might be crucial to employee retention. Thinking about how to grow your employees from a portfolio standpoint, might give you an opportunity to say like, hey, do you have any other interests that we might be able to take advantage of here? And I, I say take advantage in like the best possible, you know, interpretation, not exploit, but like, are you a, I don't know, a marketing assistant who loves photography? Well, do you want to do some freelance photography for the marketing team? Are you, uh, you know, a front desk employee who's like learning to code in your free time? Like, is there something that we could, a stretch assignment that we could offer that would let you bring that skill in, develop it, maybe get a piece for your work portfolio off of it and offer you growth and fulfillment 
that doesn't necessarily have to be tied to extra earnings or a promotion. So I think there's opportunities there to really be thinking about both employee happiness and development from a portfolio rather than just that linear standpoint. And ultimately, even if your employees do leave you, as most of the research suggests they will, average employee tenure is much closer to a tour of duty uh, framework than it was for our parents who thought about lifetime employment or our grandparents uh, who thought about certainly like not just one career, but one company for their whole life. So, So I think there's some advantages to the organization, but ultimately, the individual is going to do what they need to do. And in a state of constant disruption, they're going to seek stability. And organizations have to be prepared for that. Yeah, I think there's also an opportunity to expand the talent pool, right? Absolutely. If everybody's competing for the same small pool, let's go on the A-plus level employees, there may be people who are capable of great performance from nine to five, but they don't want to be there at 530. And by balancing that, you're expanding your portfolio of employees, if you will. Want to go back to sort of the perspective of the individual. So we've talked a lot about what's a portfolio life, uh, how to think about it within the context of your overall life, within your job. Where do I start? (laughs) It's a great question. So I wrote this book from a very hands-on point of view. I, I love reading books that offer me new ideas and inspiration, but I get a little frustrated sometimes when I get to the end and I'm like, okay, but what am I supposed to do with that? <laughs> so so I wrote this to be very tactical. So the first part of the book is sort of the why, uh, what exactly is this? The middle of the book is the what. What is in your Venn diagram? What is in your portfolio? So it's very, um, it's like a workshop with me. You got to get some post-its and uh, a nice big table you can spread them out on and walk through uh, and basically excavating the things that are in your Venn diagram. What are those skills, those industries, those interests that make up that, that mix of what you bring to the table? And then what do you need and what do you want? Or I like to use the word wish. What do you wish for your life? So there's a couple of steps here. The needs is really around what does this chapter of your life need? And we get pretty tactical here, right? Like how much money do you need? What sort of stability do you need? Do you need autonomy over your schedule? Do you need an office with a door that closes? Do you need predictable childcare? Do you need to be surrounded by a community every day? Or do you need to be alone. You need that quiet and that focus. So you 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 get through sort of this short list of what do I need to be my best self right now? And then we start to talk about the wishes for your life. And I borrowed this step uh, from a couple of different folks who have published really great exercises on this front, which is to map out a hundred wishes. Like everyone can write about 20, 25, maybe 30. It gets hard to get to a hundred, but I really push you on this because when you start getting past the obvious ones, you start recognizing how big your life can be. And you start realizing all the things that you want to see 
and experience before you die? What sort of impact do you want to leave? What legacy, the imprint of your life? And and you start to recognize that like work is a big part of it. Yes. But it's it's just a part of it. So once you map out these wishes and you sort of group them by category, then we turn to how you're spending your time currently. And you start to see a disconnect. Most people do. I certainly did the first time I did it. Between what I say I want for my life and how I'm actually managing and spending my time. I say I want to run marathons, travel to all seven continents, run for political office, perform on Broadway. I say I want all these things. And then I'm spending 75% of my time at a desk. Okay. So you start to see a bit of a disconnect between this, your sort of de facto portfolio and what you hope to be and leave behind. And then we go into the last step, which is like, great. So how are we going to fix this? Let's design an intentional portfolio. And you start to see where you can make some adjustments. Sometimes the adjustments might just need to be little tweaks. Maybe you're not that far off. Maybe you say, yeah, I've got these big wishes for for someday, but right now I'm actually kind of happy with where I'm. I just need a couple of adjustments. Or you might be like one of the stories in the book, Diego, who was like, "Uh, so it turns out what I say I want has literally nothing in common with my day job. He was a, a corporate litigator at the time. And he's like, yeah, I don't have a single wish that has anything to do with corporate litigation. We're like, okay, so what are we going to do about that? And we start to design a new mix. And you can think about, okay, what do I currently do that I could I could adjust? Maybe in his case, we took this full-time job that was 100 hours a week in corporate litigation. He stepped off partner track. He said, look, I'm going to leave the company, but would love to you know, do a little bit of freelance work, contract employee, contract lawyer work. And I said, great, we would be happy to have you as like our on-call kind of uh, extra capacity when we have these surges. So he started doing that part-time. He downsized his apartment. He adjusted his budget to like lower his burn rate. At this point, he had already paid off his student loans. So his income needs were actually pretty minimal. He was single at the time, no, no dependents. And really kind of reshaped uh, what he needed in order to support what he wanted, which at that point was to write a novel and to find a life partner. All of these times working in law, it, it didn't leave any space to meet someone. So he started volunteering at a food bank. Uh, he decided to get more politically involved. He had been a, a dual degree in law school and public policy and yet had lost that piece of himself as he had gone down his legal career. Uh, so he got politically involved. He met his future husband at the food bank volunteering one day and had the space to build a relationship. And over time was able to kind of still monetize this law part of his life to the point that it could support the other things that he actually cared more about. Yeah, that's a great story. And 
I love this exercise of listing our wishes and listing where we're spending our time. Something that's really interesting about that is, you know, we may start the exercise expecting to find out that there are all these things that we want and we're not spending the time against them. But even more interesting is the opposite, which is that maybe we're gonna find out that the things that we really think we want, we don't really want because we're not willing to put the time against it. And a place where that comes really into play is if you have regrets, right? You may find yourself and say, oh, I really wanted to be a partner at a law firm. And then you ask yourself a question, would I be willing to go back and trade all the things that I did in my life for the 120 hours a week that it would take to become a partner at the law firm and say, well, you know, maybe not so much for me. Maybe I'm happy with what I have instead. Mm-hmm. This is so true because I, there's there's that opportunity to say, great, put your money where your mouth is. You say you want this, go do it. And there's a great story in the book of uh, a woman named Catherine who got to the sort of early 30s. She was a middle school teacher and she was thinking through her wishes and was kind of like, I really want to be a doctor. I've always wanted to be a doctor. I- I'm like frustrated that I didn't go to medical school, that like I went down this path to become like a middle school science teacher. And she reached this point. She was really good at being a middle school science teacher. And she had a great life doing that and was kind of like, no, no, no. I'm willing to change my allocation of my time and go to medical school. And at 33, quit her job, went and did a two-year post-baccalaureate to get some of the science credits that she hadn't taken, then did four years of medical school in her late 30s. And is now literally in like two months graduating from Columbia Medical School and starting her intern year as an OBGYN as she turns 40. And I think that's such a perfect, to your point, a, a perfect opportunity to say, you say you want this. This is how you're spending your time. Figure out the disconnect. And ad- you have to adjust one way or another. Either you change your time to go after these things you say you want. Or you have to have a real conversation with like, is that really what you want? I have one example in there was I was setting some goals for myself where I said I wanted to practice cello three times a week. That was one of my big goals for the year. And I got to the end of the year and I was like, I picked my cello up twice this year. And so I had that moment of like, was that because I didn't have time for my cello or is it because that was not actually what I wanted? And I realized that what I wanted was to make music, but I didn't actually want to practice my cello. Certainly not as I had practiced cello in high school. I didn't want to like do the etudes and the scales and all these things. And I was like, oh, well, I did make music this year. I sang with an acapella group. I performed, like, I did actually do that thing, the thing that I truly wanted. It's just that practicing cello isn't a good statement of that wish. So I need to adjust how I how I phrase that. That is fabulous. And I think it's a really powerful exercise. There are a lot of like situations where obviously there may be practical, you know, your needs that are not met, et cetera. But once you're past those sort of the first two layers, if you will, of the Maslow pyramid, going through this exercise to really reconcile what you really want and what you're willing to put in to get what you want will get you to a much happier place because you're either going to make the adjustment or you're going to stop being unhappy because you don't have what you want. Because like, yeah. Well, 
This has been a fabulous conversation, as usual. (laughs) Your book comes out on April 18th. Yes, so soon. This episode is going to come out a little before, so people can go and pre-order it. Where else can people find you? Your best bet, LinkedIn. You can follow me on LinkedIn. I post there from time to time or on Instagram. The caveat on Instagram is you have to put up with pictures of my family. So (laughs) it's part of my portfolio. I I share them there. But both are great places to keep track of my work and as I'm posting uh, events and other ways to interact. Those are both my active channels. I'm not on TikTok quite yet. I'll let you know if that changes. Yeah, it's a big commitment. And, you know, one of us like, do I want to invest now if they're going to shut it down? (laughs) (laughs) Christina, it's been fabulous to have you again. I will not put you through the three questions at the end because people (laughs) can go back. Unless you want to add one more jazz records. I know the last time you spoke about Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. Maybe we can send people to some other good jazz records or not jazz, some other good records since you talk about music. Yes. I mean, I'll tell you my two other faves that I have in rotation right now. One is Steve Reich music for 18 musicians. If you need some good trance music while you're working, I can't write to anything that has words, has lyrics. So I'm really into uh, some Steve Reich these days. And then my... My other wreck, which is uh, it's total bias because I invested in the show and I love it, but Parade on Broadway just released a new cast album. So if you're into Jason Robert Brown, if you're into Broadway musicals, highly recommend checking out Ben Platt, Michaela uh, Diamond, fantastic recording. Fabulous. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell your friends about it and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a sterile rating and a review. Now stick around because after the credits, I am going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. As usual, I will have all the links for Christina on the episode page of my podcast website. The site is al4ep.com, spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And please follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The handle on Twitter and Instagram is at al4edp, with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. The episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, recorded, and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, one of my favorite songs by Susan Cattaneo, whose lyrics I think are a great inspiration if you've listened to this episode. It's called Work Hard, Love Harder, and it features the Bottle Rockets.